0: guys today is episode number two all about um jesus and so we're exploring the question of hey is jesus really um god in the flesh like the christian faith you know will will say Does scripture actually support those claims that jesus is god in the flesh that he's claiming to be deity that he's actually divine that he's uncreated that he's eternally existent and that he has no beginning that he has no end is, is Jesus really God in the flesh? And today what we're gonna do, if you haven't already watched the first episode, go watch that um, because what we did is we went through Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah, and we traced out all these different key themes and how they culminate in Jesus. So we talked about how the salvation of God and the righteousness of God and the, and the, the, um, the glory of God, the name of God, the word of God is all the theme um, in Isaiah's prophecy and Jesus is those things. He is righteousness. He is salvation. He is the glory of God. He is the name of God, the sum total of his attributes and character. And so, um, today what we're gonna do is continue down that line of thought, and there are two more uh, themes to explore throughout scripture, which is, we're gonna see the angel of the Lord, quite a bit, okay? The angel of the Lord is, is different from just an angel, uh, a, a messenger. The word angel just simply means messenger. And so you're going to see that in the Old Testament, there's one who is the Angel of the Lord, and he makes appearances throughout the Old Testament narrative, and then he stops showing up. New Testament, uh, something's happening there, and he is distinct from just a typical angel, a created being who's a messenger of God. And you know Hebrews says that they're a flame of fire, that they're actually like sent out to serve the church. Um, And so we're going to see that the Angel of the Lord is different from your typical angelic messenger. Um, and we're going to see the word of the Lord or the word of God seems to be uh, more than just a concept and an idea. The word of the Lord seems to be communicated as a person that appears in the Old Testament. So before I make all these wild claims, I'm just going to walk through this as slowly and methodically as I can, because this just, man, when you understand that Jesus is, is all over the Old Testament. Like when John in chapter one of his gospel, in verse 14, he says, the word became flesh. The word dwelt among us, right? Or in verse one, he says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. These are not new ideas to the New Testament. The biblical authors, the apostles of Jesus, the Jewish carpenter from Nazareth, they're actually communicating how Jesus is the, the culmination of everything we see in the Old Testament written hundreds, even thousands of years before his appearance that he fits all these categories, narratively, uh, theologically. He's righteousness, he's salvation, he's the word of God, he's the the redeemer, he's the savior, he's the son, the divine, he's everything we've been waiting for. And so this is why John in his gospel can say in verse 14 that the word became flesh, meaning the word pre-existed, whoever the word is, like he said, the word was with God and the word was God, he became flesh meaning he existed prior to his fleshly human life. The word puts on flesh, but pre-existed that human life. And he dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John's going, look, John the Baptist bore witness about him. We as the apostles bear witness about him. The 500 you know, uh, disciples that Jesus appeared to post-resurrection, they bear witness, church fathers bear witness, creation bears witness. You have more than enough witness. The miracles, the church, uh, the gospel transforming lives, all these different things bear witness to who Jesus is. So what I'm gonna do is we're gonna trace the angel of the Lord, the angel of God, um, or God's angel. That's typically how he'll be communicated. He's either the angel of God, the uh, uh, angel of the Lord, or he's God's angel. And that's different than an angel or angels and angelic beings created by God. The angel of God seems to be different. And I'm gonna, you're going to see it. And I really hope you, you start to see that as this develops, we're going to look at every single instance in the Old Testament. We might be here for a while. Every single instance of the angel of God in the scriptures. And it'll, it's going to blow your mind, okay? This is crazy. Let's go to Exodus 33, verse 21st we need to set the tone. I need to let you know ahead of time that this is what God says to Moses. So everything we're about to see, that I'm about to show you, does not violate what God tells Moses in Exodus 33:20. Exodus 33:20, the Lord says, you cannot see my face. Moses wants to see the glory of God. He says, show me your glory. God's gonna let him behold his glory, but his passing glory, the backside of the train of his robe. Man shall not see me and live. So whatever we're about to see does not violate or make this untrue. God is telling the truth. Man, humanity, as we are in our sinful condition, in our sinful body, in a broken world, cannot see God, which I believe refers to the full dimension of his glory and goodness and radiance, that is what his face often represents in scripture. The face of God represents his favor, um, the fullness of his glory, the fullness of his radiance, and and the radiance of his goodness. That's often represented by the face, Um, as opposed to God turning his face from Israel and withholding or turning away his glory and favor. And so I don't believe that any person can see the full scope of what Moses wants. Moses says, show me your glory. And God's going to say, well, you can't really handle that. In your, that's why we have to be born again. Because in our sinful condition, tainted by the disease of sin and evil, we, we're not compatible with the presence of God. Darkness and light can't coexist. Darkness is not compatible with light. One, over, one outweighs the other. So if God's glorious radiance and goodness represented in in the terminology of light, if his light is gonna be something we see and behold, we have to be reformatted, spiritually born again, made alive, sin removed from us so that we can actually behold him. Because the psalmist will say, uh, no evil can dwell in your presence. And so what I'm about to show you is I believe the Lord God actually showing up, appearing, revealing himself to lots of characters in scripture, okay? And then you're gonna see the angel of the Lord start to fit in this category of God showing up to people. So know this, everything we're about to see does not violate this, that human beings will not, this side of heaven, in their sinful condition, in this broken body, that no one will behold the fullness of God's glory um, this side of heaven, it's not possible. I believe just as if you get too close to the sun, it would obliterate you, so it is with the goodness and the radiance of God, which is why he removes this body when we're, when we're dead and we're resurrected to new glorified bodies that can actually, we're formatted, we're reformatted to behold the glory of God so that we're compatible with his presence. And that's what we're gonna see with, um, not just our new nature, not just our new identity, not just our new standing and position but eventually the body that matches that. And so let me take you to a few instances. Now that we've set the tone, let me show you that God actually appears to many people. So whatever he's appearing as, and however he's appearing, he is not revealing the fullness of his glory and radiance and goodness, because it would simply obliterate a a, a sinful human being in their broken, you know, Temporal bodies wouldn't be able to behold that Genesis chapter 12 verse 7 As usual it's hot so I'm going to turn on the fan Genesis 12 verse 7 It says the Lord appeared to Abraham Can we all agree that's what the text says That the Lord which, which involves some visual experience Some involvement with the, with the, with the eyes there's an appearing to Abraham. And he said to your offspring, I will give this land. So this is Abraham already in the land that he doesn't yet have, but God is guaranteeing, this will be yours and for your offspring. Their generations, your future generations will live in this land. So Abraham responds by building an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him, in case you missed it the first time, that God actually appeared to Abraham. Now this is the first time and not the last time. Genesis 17, one, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham. Now this doesn't always happen. Sometimes the word of the Lord comes to Abraham. Sometimes God speaks to Abraham. Other times there's an appearing, an actual visual experience with the Lord God, the creator of the universe. And we have to try and reconcile that with Exodus 33:20 that the Lord actually appears to Abraham, and he says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. That I may make my covenant between you, uh, between me and you, and may multiply you greatly, okay? And so this is God appearing for the second time, at least in Abraham's life, Abram at this point. Abram has experienced an appearance of God twice. So now, when you get to Genesis 18 and, and when God appears, it is always to reinforce the covenant or the promise he's made to Abraham. In other words, when God appears, it's to signify what I said I'm gonna do and nothing's gonna stop that. So he's, this is why Hebrews and Romans and Galatians will use the language of he swore by himself. That what he made, the promise he made to Abraham, he would fulfill. And he actually appears in some recognizable form that Abraham can handle. He appears to let Abraham know that the promises I made to you, no one's going to stop. Okay? So go with me to Genesis 18. Genesis 18. This is crazy. Typically, people think this is their idea of the triune God, the Trinity. They think this is what's happening here. I, I, I disagree, I disagree. But I do believe God, again, appears to Abraham. Third time, third time, over the span of what, 20 years? So it's, again, that's not a normal thing. When we read Genesis 12 to 18, we're like, dang, in six chapters, three times? Bro, that's the span of like 20, 30 years. And so, this is not a frequent thing, at least recorded in scripture, because God will, you know, come to Abraham and speak or say something, or the word of God will come to Abraham. But then, the biblical authors will make it clear when God actually appears to Abraham or another biblical character. So, Abraham's at the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes, okay? Note that this is an actual physical, visible experience. His eyes are looking and beholding, what? Three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, again, just to make it very clear, these are the physical senses. He's seeing what I believe is the Lord appearing to him. He ran from the tent door to meet them and he bowed himself to the earth and said, Oh, Lord. Okay, you might just think, oh, well, he's recognizing authority and reputation and status. I beg to differ. It's not just a person who has status and authority. He has been in the presence of God enough times already at this point in his life to recognize when God appears. So he says, oh Lord, if I've found favor in your sight, don't pass by your servant. This is interesting because Moses will essentially ask for the same thing on Mount Sinai. He'll say, can I behold your glory? God will pass by not to disregard the claim or the request, but to actually let Moses behold his glory in a way Moses can handle. In other words, Moses finds favor in the sight of God because God appears and reveals a dimension of his glory that Moses can handle in his, you know, uh, sinful body that he can handle. Uh, So he says, oh Lord, if I found favor in your sight, don't pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet. In other words, let me show hospitality to you and treat you the way you deserve. Let me bring water to you. Let me wash your feet. Rest yourselves under the tree. It is interesting that uh, the narrative is specifying that this involves a tree. Something to think about. When God typically appears, you'll sometimes see something like that. Some uh, call back to the garden of Eden while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves after that you may pass on. In other words, let me tend to you. Not that this, these three people have needs to be tended to, but Abraham would like to show his hospitality and, and his, um, his concern for these people since you've come to your servant. What, why is Abraham calling himself the servant of these three people? Now, if these are people that he knows, friends, neighbors, relatives passing through, you think the narrative would specify that? Just says three men. And it comes right after the Lord appeared to him. So in other words, the narrative makes a broad statement. Hey, the Lord appeared to Abraham. Let's explain what that looked like. He lifted up his eyes and he saw three men in front of him. And he said, let me bring water. Let me care for your needs. So they said, do as you've said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, "Quick, three sheas of fine flour. Need it make cakes." Abraham ran. He essentially is preparing an offering. Um, and then you're going to scroll down, and it says, "The Lord said." The Lord said. Now the only thing we see so far is Abraham talking to three people, and all of a sudden, what? The Lord comes out of nowhere. Where'd the Lord come out? You know, come from? Uh, They said to him, where's Sarah, your wife? And he said, in the tent. And then all of a sudden the Lord speaks up, presumably from their midst. In other words, one of these three men is actually the Lord speaking. In a recognizable form that again, Abraham can handle and recognize. In other words, this seems to be, and this is not the only text. There are many others we're gonna look at. This is not the only time where God seems to be appearing in what, in human form. I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah your wife shall have a son. So it's interesting, they say, where's Sarah? The Lord speaks up and goes, speaking of Sarah, I'm gonna show up next year, she'll have a son. And Sarah was listening at the door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were really old. Sarah got a dusty womb. She's advanced in years, so the way of women had ceased to be with. What a nice way of saying she could not bear children. The way of women had ceased to be with her. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, "After I'm like so old, and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure?" The Lord said to Abraham, "There he's again. Why did Sarah laugh? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And then you scroll down in it, and the Lord begins talking to Abraham about what he's about to do through these other two men who are with him. So there's the Lord clearly the God of Abraham showing up appearing in some kind of form Abraham can handle and you got two other people with him and he's about to dispatch these two men to go and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of the outcry that has reached his ears against Sodom and Gomorrah which you might say is the blood crying out from the ground just like the blood of Abel cries out from the ground And the Lord is gonna dispatch these, but he's talking to Abraham about what he's about to do through these two men, which are gonna be revealed as angels. So we know for sure two of these men are angels sent to go and bring fire down on Sodom and Gomorrah and rescue Lot and his family. Because Lot is Abraham's nephew. And God wants to show favor and grace to both Abraham and Lot, even though Lot's a knucklehead. And so the Lord says, shall I hide from Abraham when I'm about to... You can go on and read the text, okay? But I I have like literally probably half... No, probably more than 50 passages to look at today. So I can't just hang around here. We got to go to Genesis 32. Genesis 32. You're going to see that after the Lord appears to Abraham three times, I think it's very clear in the text that God is appearing you're gonna see God actually appears to Jacob, his grandson. So we're two generations removed from Abraham in Genesis 32. We got Jacob, his grandson, who is now the patriarch continuing the lineage of what Genesis told us is the promised seed of the woman. So Genesis, in most of the Old Testament, is like a cameraman following around whoever is gonna bring about the promised seed of the Messiah. You know, you're following Noah, you're going down to Abraham, following uh, Isaac, following Jacob, and then you get down to uh, Judah, and the narrative is tracing who is this promised one coming, and it's letting you know that Jacob is a part of that. Jacob was left alone. So we have Jacob who ran away. He went to hang out with his uncle, got married, got four wives, pretty bad idea in my estimation, very bad idea. He ends up having four wives, uh, one of them not necessarily one that he wanted, and uh Now he's going back home to an angry brother that he thinks still hates him and wants to kill him, Esau, okay? So Jacob's terrified that he's about to meet Esau with 400 men and he's gonna die. His family's gonna die because he thinks Esau still hates him, wants to kill him, when in fact Esau's over it. Jacob is left alone though, okay? After all his scheming and conniving is caught up with him, he's found himself alone, a few hours before he's about to meet Esau, which he thinks he's sent gifts to Esau to try and like ease his, you know, his anger and be like, I love you, bro, please don't murder me. And Jacob's left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When, again, I love when the scripture is like very vague. Whenever it's very vague or it's a really confusing thing, pay very careful attention to what's happening. That's usually an indication you should perk up and listen. When the man saw that he didn't prevail against Jacob, this doesn't mean the man could not beat Jacob. It means Jacob was persistent. He touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. There's a wrestling going on. Which you're supposed to think is a physical example of Jacob and, and Esau essentially wrestling in the womb for who will be the you know who will be the, the, the firstborn, who will get that status, who will get that rank, right? Patriarchal society, and so this this moment is the culmination and a physical example of how Jacob has just wrestled and 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 fought his way through life by his own efforts by his own conniving and scheming and working and, and planning and laboring and re, you know, relying on himself and lying and deceiving. It's finally catching up with him and he's wrestling with a man. Then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not unless you bless me. Pause. Is this a fight to see who's stronger and who will win? No. For Jacob, this is a I'm hanging on to you for dear life. So when it says the man didn't prevail against Jacob, that means Jacob was so persistent, he wouldn't let him go. Why? Jacob recognizes this man as being able to bless him. So you and I have to ask, where in the world did Jacob get the idea that this man could bless him? Pause, also, double pause. Up to this point in the narrative, we only see God as being able to effectively bless. You know, Melchizedek will also be a blessing to Abraham as the, the priest king of Jerusalem at the time, or Salem. That's why my son's name is Salem. But typically, the, the most common person who blesses and has the authority and power to do it is God. But Jacob's clinging to this man saying, I won't let you go until you bless me. And he said, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel." In scripture, there's only really one person who has the authority to declare a name change because the name was representative of the character, the personhood of the individual, right? This is why the name of God is the sum total of his attributes. So when you're named, it's often indicative of your future, your experiences, who you'll be, your personality, your character, whoever this man is, decides to rename Jacob the patriarch. Now watch. He says, you have striven with God and with men, and you've prevailed. And this is not Jacob anymore lying and deceiving his way into stuff. This is Jacob clinging to someone stronger than him to bless him. This is a form of humility for Jacob that is foreign to him. He's reached the end of himself and he seems to be leaning now on the God of his fathers. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. Now watch. Why is it that you ask me my name? And there he blessed him. Bro, if just tell me your name, why you got to be so weird? (laughs) Tell me your name. Because something else is going on here. So this person has the authority to bless, change the name of Jacob. Then Jacob called the name of the place Peniel saying I have seen God face to face. Is that metaphorical? Is that figurative? Or is that literally happening? I would say, if you go to Hosea 12.4, you're gonna see that it's very literal. Jacob has experienced God face to face, pause. Exodus 33 told us no one can behold the face, the full glory of God without, you know, (laughs) <laughs> being obliterated in their you know, sinful body. We can't handle that. That's why we're reformatted and reborn and regenerated to be able to you know, be compatible with the glory of God. So how is Jacob seeing God face to face? And he says, yet my life has been delivered. That's the key. That's the key. Not only has God assumed a form that is recognizable and that Jacob can handle as a man, this is God literally assuming a human form, not human nature, not human essence, just the outward appearance, the form of a person. And Jacob goes, I've seen God, yet my life has been delivered. He knows that he has no right to even be in the presence of God. There's something so you know, glorious and beautiful and, and transcendent about being in the presence of God, Jacob knows I, I don't actually, I, I shouldn't be able to do this. So in other words, whatever God is doing here, appearing to Jacob, it's an act of grace that he spares his life. You're gonna see this with Gideon. You're gonna see this with Samson's parents. You're gonna see this with, um, who else? Um, I can't think off the top of my head, I, I believe Moses the same language is used that i saw the lord and i didn't get destroyed i saw the lord and he didn't kill me i saw the lord and i was able to grace he let me graciously experience his presence but not in a way that violates exodus 3320 okay so hosea 12:4 will speak to the same event but later 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 in the future of israel this is way down the line he's describing jacob Here in the womb, he took his brother by the heel. He strove with God in his manhood. He strove with the angel and prevailed. Pause, where does the text say anything about an angel in Genesis 32? This is not a contradiction. This is a clarification in hindsight. This is an extra dimension of details that the author of Genesis, presumably Moses, leaves out. That seems intentionally. And Hosea's picking up, looking back, going, yeah, Jacob strove with the angel and prevailed. I thought it was a person. I thought it was God. We're we're starting to see a category develop of God in the form of man, but also referred to as the exclusive angel. Again, don't think created being, created messenger, angelic spiritual being that was created by God Just think very simply messenger. Jesus is a messenger. God himself brings a message and he'll use messengers. So angel here being one who uh, accomplishes, not just the word of God, but the the plan of God. So he wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel. Now I believe this is describing a different situation. Remember when Jacob falls asleep, as he's running away from Esau to go to his uncle Laban, he falls asleep at a place called Bethel, meets God, sees a staircase or some kind of you know, ladder going up to heaven and the angels are going up and down on that. Angels, messengers, spiritual beings created by God, different than the exclusive angel of God. And this is why Jesus will say, hey, I'm the one that the angels ascend and descend on. He tells that to Nathaniel, I believe. And there God spoke with us. Now, it's, it's almost like he's combining the same event. It's interesting that he follows, he, he strove with the angel, he prevailed, right? He got blessing, he's, he clung to the angel, but I thought he was clinging to God, who was first a man, and he met God at Bethel. It, it's almost like in the, in the prophet Hosea, he's, he's meshing the two events. Not to say that these were the same event, but they're so similar, just in different locations, okay? This is very, very, very fascinating to me, that in the Old Testament, there's so many of these moments that we gloss right over. We, we go right, and we haven't even gotten to Gideon. We're going there, okay? I, I, we'll get there. Let me go to Amos real quick. Good old Amos. Good old Amos. Nothing against Amos just reminds me of Uranus, the planet that no one wants to talk about. It's kinda like Amos. Amos seven. Okay, Amos actually sees the Lord standing. Presumably, based on what we've seen with Abraham and Jacob so far, what we can most likely infer is that this is God in a recognizable human form. It doesn't mean he's limited to humanity, it means he's assumed a form Amos can recognize. Now, this is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord, the Lord. Not like a Lord, not like some Lord, the exclusive Lord God of Israel, the only God of the heavens. He was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, you can't look at me. No, he goes, Amos, what do you see? So this its going to go on to talk about the prophecy and all that Amos is going to be a part of. And, but the point is, he sees God standing. Hmm. How's that possible? Amos chapter 9, verse one, just a couple chapters down. Don't get dizzy, don't throw up. He said, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. So God is standing again, this time beside the altar. And then he tells Amos what to do. Isaiah 6, one, very similar prophetic vision. Now again, these are most likely visionary experiences. If you were a, a seer or a prophet that specialized in visions, you would have oracles. You would, you would see visions that God would give you that would give insight, understanding, clarity into situations of the future. Isaiah 6:1, in the, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. He was high and lifted up, the train of his robe filled the temple, above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. So, Isaiah is getting an incredible vision of God sitting on the throne with all power, all authority, all dominion, as the ultimate king of the entire universe. Amos saw him standing beside the altar, Amos saw him standing beside a wall, okay? So when you get later down to the prophets, you have a category of man seeing God in a way they can handle and in a recognizable form. This is where we get to the angel of God in the Old Testament. Very similar things happen with the angel of God. Now, I encourage you uh, to go and study on the angel of God. I've, I've looked at every single occurrence of the angel of God in the entire, all, all throughout scripture, like everything I could find. I've looked it up and this is everything I've concluded based on all the data. This is not limited research, this is not rushed research, this is compiling all the data we have about the angel of God versus an angel or angels or any messengers that are created, he's different, he's different. The first thing you're gonna see about the angel of God, which, which is this, okay? It seems as though God does appear in the Old Testament for sure in a visible form, first as a man, second, I believe as the angel of the Lord, and third, as the word of the Lord, which might just be three different names for the same exact experience. I don't believe there's any contradictions going on. It's very clear. It all ties so neatly together in the person of Jesus. Okay, so go to Deuteronomy chapter four, verse 37. This is crazy. watch this Deuteronomy 4:37 because he loved your fathers and he chose their offspring after them and he brought you out of Egypt okay this is Moses reminding Israel what's happened for them he's going look god loved your fathers chose their offspring after them brought you out of egypt with his own presence with his own presence by his great power, we've already established in the New Testament, the, Jesus is the power of God. So when you read in the Old Testament, the arm of God or the hand of God or the power of God, what, what you're seeing is Jesus going to work as an extension of the Father, as an extension of the Father. And so it says, he brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. So notice, how did God bring his people out of Egypt? With his own presence, by his great power. Hold on to that, because everything you're, you, you have to keep this at the front of your mind. As we look at Exodus 14, as we look at Exodus 23, remember, Moses recalls the presence of God not someone representing God, not a messenger in the name of God, the actual presence of God himself. His own great power is bringing Israel out of Egypt. Cuz you're about to see in Exodus 14:19, the angel of God is actually credited with the exodus and the liberation of Israel. Exodus 14:19 it says, okay, so here we have the Egyptians um, chasing Israel, and, you know, they are um, cornered, their backs up against the wall, they're standing at the, uh, at the Red Sea, the Reed Sea, however it ends up being, and uh, Pharaoh's, you know, getting closer with his armies, and Israel's freaking out, going, why do we follow God? Gosh darn it, we should have stayed in Egypt with our leeks, could have had onions, man. And God is saying, Moses, everyone's going to know that I'm the Lord when I get glory over Pharaoh. Now, watch. Right after God says, they will know that I am the Lord when I get glory over Pharaoh, it says then, the angel of God, who was, which I think it is more appropriate. Not that this is a bad translation, I just think theologically, when you see the angel of God, Just think the presence of God. Think that's more more accurate. The angel of God who was going before the host of Israel. So who is leading Israel out of Egypt in the pillar of fire by night and in the pillar of cloud by day? The angel of God. He's going before the host of Israel. And guess what he does? He moves and goes behind them and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. What is the text indicating that the pillar of cloud they're seeing is in fact at least representative of the angel of God in their midst, if not a visible manifestation of the angel of God himself. Because we have the angel of God moving behind them and the pillar of cloud is said to in a visible way where Israel can go, whoa, he moves behind them, the pillar moves behind them, the cloud moves behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. In other words, the angel of God in a pillar of cloud stands between Egypt and Israel and there was the cloud and the darkness and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Okay, so... As we see Israel exiting Egypt, who is leading them? Well, it's God. The angel of God in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Okay. At least here, I think it's nighttime. Actually, lights up the night. Exodus 23. This is what I'm not not done. Trust me. I'm just, we're moving forward in the narrative. Um, In Exodus 23, this is what God says about Israel going into the promised land. This is what he says. He says, behold, I send an angel before you to guard you. Now, it would make the most sense that the same angel bringing them out of Egypt is the same angel bringing them into the promised land. I don't think the angels are like taking time off and tag teaming in. Like I brought them out of Egypt. Now you bring them into the Promised Land. I got you, fam. You know, tag teaming each other in. I believe this is the same angel. I'll show you why. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and bring you to the place that I have prepared. I'm telling you, like once you see it, this is undeniable. Pay careful attention to him obey his voice, do not rebel against him. He will not pardon your transgression for my name is in him. I'm wondering if I should jump to this yet. Let me do this. I'm gonna come back to Exodus 23. I'm gonna come back to Exodus 23, I promise. I just wanna show you that, okay. Isaiah, Judges, all the biblical authors see the angel of God as being the one who brought Israel out of Egypt. Isaiah 63:9 it says, In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and his pity he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. So uh, this is not just at the Exodus or the Red Sea or the Promised Land. This This seems to be the entire history of Israel we have the angel of his very presence. Remember how I said the presence of God in Exodus, or Deuteronomy four, the presence of God led them out. Yet in Exodus 14, Exodus 23, it's gonna be the angel of God, which again, I don't believe is an ambassador of his presence or a representative or some mere uh, extension here, I'm carrying the presence. This is God himself doing the saving, the redeeming, the, the liberating, He's doing all that. He's carrying them on his back. He's got the team on his back. And so this is all the days of old. Israel's history is the angel of his presence saving, carrying, lifting, redeeming, but it's God himself. Um, Judges 2, 1 through 5. Okay. You know, this is a little overkill. But I want to make it very clear that scripture sees the angel of God as being credited with the exodus. Now, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. good name for your next hamster, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt. Whoa, take it easy there. You're just the angel of God. No, he's God. He's the presence of God. The angel of the Lord went up and he said, who's he? only person that's been noted in verse one i brought you up from egypt i brought you into the land i swore to give to your fathers i said i'll never break my covenant with you who made a covenant with israel who made a covenant with israel an angel a messenger a created spiritual being or did god himself and yet the angel of the lord is said to be the one making the covenant that would violate scripture unless, unless he actually is the Lord. I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land, you shall break down their altars but you've not obeyed my voice. What did he say in Exodus chapter 23? I send an angel before you, obey his voice. Don't rebel against him. He won't pardon your sins. What is this that you've done? You've kept them, not driven them out. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people, the people wept, and they sacrificed to the Lord." Who are they sacrificing to? The same one that brought the news. Y'all didn't listen. I told you, I told you, I made a very clear listen. I made it very, very clear. Y'all didn't obey. You rebelled, you bunch of toddlers, man. And so I, I think scripture is very clear that the angel of God is credited with the Exodus, okay? Just in case people are like, yeah, it's not enough evidence. Exodus 23. There are a few things I want to note. I'm jumping the gun a bit because I want you to see this slowly and methodically, not all at once. So I'm going to jump to John 17 because I'm starting to make a case, number one, that the angel of God is, in fact, God himself, his very near presence doing the redeeming, the, sal- the, the saving, the guarding, the protecting, the liberating. Number two, I wanna make the case, and I'm gonna start to, that Jesus, the word of God, the savior, the son of God, the beloved, the only begotten son of God, he is the angel of God in the Old Testament. Look at the language, okay? I, I just want you to think, New Testament, what does Jesus say about himself? Behold, the Lord says, I send an angel before you to guard you. So, this angel, so far, is starting to appear as distinct from the Lord, yet the Lord Himself. <clears throat> to bring you to the place I have prepared. Pause. What does Jesus say in John 14? I go to prepare a place for who? For you. Continue. Pay careful attention to Him and obey His voice. Pause. What did Moses say would happen if... Who did he say was going to be raised up in the future? The true prophet of God. The perfect prophet of God. The ultimate prophet and and word of God himself. And Moses will say, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet from among you. Listen to him. Pay very close attention to him. Double pause. What does God say on the Mount of Transfiguration about his son? When Peter goes, let's build three tabernacles for you, Moses, Elijah, got the whole squad. A cloud covers and goes, hey, this is my son. Listen to him. Peter's terrified, craps his pants, looks up. What does he see? No one but Jesus. Elijah's gone. Moses is gone. Jesus is the culmination of the law and the prophets. Don't rebel against him he will not pardon your transgression. Whoever this angel is, has the ability to guard, inherited authority from the father, it seems like, is an authoritative voice because he's, you know, God himself, and he has the ability to pardon or not pardon transgression. Why? He explains, because my name is in him. In other words, Remember how we talked about the name being the sum total of the attributes and the character of an individual? God's name, the sum total of his attributes and character is in this angel. I do not believe, and I'm I'm really thinking about this before I say it, (laughs) making sure I'm covering all my bases. I don't believe that can be said of any other being in existence besides God himself. Like an angel, a created, you know, spiritual being who's a messenger, different than the angel of God's presence here because his name is in him. Let me take you to John 17. John chapter 17, Jesus is praying the high priestly prayer. And he says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. He's praying for the apostles, the the disciples. I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name which you've given me that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, watch what Jesus says. While I was with these knuckleheads, I kept them in your name. I kept them in your name, which you have given me. So the disciples are given, but here we see the name is something that Jesus perfectly embodies, represents and personifies as the inherited name from the father. And he's going, I kept them in your name, which I have, that you gave me. It's an inheritance language. What the son has is given by the father. The father has given to the son. I've guarded them. Whoa. What did God say about his angel? He said, he will guard you. And Jesus says, I've guarded them. I haven't lost any of them. Uh, except judas (laughs) scripture said he would so not my fault not my fault you know so i want you to see this we've already seen in isaiah's prophecy that jesus is the righteousness of god perfectly personified and captured in human form he's the salvation of god he's the glory of god so we've already made the case for that and made it very clear with scripture This is what Isaiah's prophecy says. Think about the angel going before the people, leading them out of Egypt, leading them into the promised land, but also being their rear guard and guarding them. Same language used of God's righteousness and his glory. He goes, Then shall your light break forth like the dawn speaking to Israel, and your healing shall spring up speedily, speedily your righteousness shall go before you now this is not the people's inherent righteousness that they have scripture says god is their righteousness their righteousness is the lord and any righteousness that's worth having comes from him so he's not talking about their own righteous works and deeds and living it's him as their righteousness will go before you and the glory of god which we've already seen Jesus is the radiance of the glory, the personification of the glory, the expression, the perfect, you know, capturing of God. He's the glory of God. He says, the glory of God shall be your rear guard, just like the angel of God, just like the angel of God, goes before and guards the rear. Now, before you throw stones at me and get real angry, check this out. We already saw that the angel of God is credited with what? The exodus. The angel of God is credited with bringing them into the promised land. Isaiah makes that clear. Uh, Judges speaks to that. Um, Exodus 23 speaks to that. So why is it that Jude, the brother of Jesus, says this? I want to remind you, you he's speaking to believers about what they've forgotten, because I want to remind you, even though you once fully knew it, like you forgot, y'all forgot, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, Yeshua, okay, if you want to get strictly Hebrew, Yeshua, which literally means salvation, that's right. Yeshua, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who didn't believe. Pause. I don't know what narrative he, Jude's reading, but when I read the Old Testament, it says that the angel of God is doing those things. Why is Jude looking back and saying Jesus was the one doing it? The angels who didn't stay within their... Now, there we go. Angels are different than the angel. The angels who didn't stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal. Just as Jesus keeps people in his name and in the name of his father, he will also keep the unbeliever under proper judgment, especially spiritual rebels who are in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So did Jesus do it? Did God do it? Or did the angel do it? I think we're saying the same thing. Psalm 106, verse 7, okay? Israel rebelled a lot against God. A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. Like, a lot, a lot, a lot. Like, more than you understand. We've, we do the same, okay? But look, Psalm 106. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, they did not consider your wondrous works. They didn't remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but they rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Okay? So here we see the people of Israel rebelling against presumably God. Okay? Go down to verse 14 and it says, they had a wanton craving in the wilderness. They put God to the test. Can we all agree that's what the text says? That Israel put God to the test in the desert? And so he sent a wasting disease among them, which seems to be by his righteous right arm, which we've already established, it seems to be Jesus. Well, let's go to 1 Corinthians one and see how Paul looks back at this event in hindsight. He says, I don't want you to be unaware brothers, same language as Jude, pretty much. I wanna remind you, our father's wall under the cloud, right, the pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, all passed through the sea, the Red Sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food, they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from da, 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 da the same spiritual rock that followed them. Now there's a rock following Israel that I don't see in the narrative. I thought it was the angel of God being in their rear guard. I thought it was the angel of God preparing a place going ahead of them. Well, if you go back to first, uh, Psalm 106, we see in verse seven, um, where is it? Where is it? I can't find it right now. Maybe it's not 1 uh, Psalm 106, but the scripture makes it very clear in the old Testament that God is the rock of his people. Okay? He's the rock. So, It says they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that was christ but god is their rock so which is it nevertheless with most of them god was not pleased they were overthrown in the wilderness now these things took place as examples for us so that we might not desire evil as they did don't be idolaters as some of them were as it is written the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play that's a nice way of saying having a giant orgy We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Now watch. Remember what Psalm 106 verse 14 said. They put God to the test in the desert. Okay. But Paul goes, we must not put Christ to the test. And you're like, well, yeah, that's the New Testament version of putting God to the test. Well, it says as some of them did. And they were destroyed by the destroyer. So... Here, Paul is, I don't think Paul's misunderstood. I don't think he's uninformed or misinformed. I believe he's right on track, man. That Israel rebelling against their rock or the angel of God who went before them and was their rear guard, the the rebelling against their God was putting Christ to the test. He says some of them did that. They put Jesus to the test, who was presumably among them as the angel of God's presence. Just think messenger. Don't get hung up on like created spiritual being. I thought he's uncreated. Just think messenger of God. It's the uncreated, timeless, eternally existent extension of the Father. Okay. He's the eternal word emanating from the Father. Um, And so let's continue looking at the angel of God. All right. Go to Genesis 24 verse 7. Genesis 24, verse 7. This is the angel of God actually um, going ahead of Abraham. Abraham's servant, sorry. Abraham goes, hey, I got, I'm dying. Or I don't think he's dying at this point. Uh, perhaps the one must I? Uh, Abraham said. Abraham was old, advanced in years. Yes, he's getting old, okay? The idea is he's approaching death. Don't know how long it's going to take, but he's getting old. I mean, he had a kid at 99 or hundred, like you do at hundred years old. Abraham tells his servant, hey, uh, go find a wife for my son among my people. So he ends up going to, um, uh, where does he end up going? Uh, well, let's just go to verse seven. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house, from the land of my kindred who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. Here's what Abraham says: He will send his angel before you. In other words, wherever I forget where he's going, but Abraham's sending his messenger his servant to go and find a wife for Isaac, his son, among his own people. Um, and he's saying, Look, his angel will go before you. Um, which is interesting, because in verse forty through forty-two, uh, This is what the servant says. The Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and prosper your way. He's recalling what Abraham told him. Uh, I think he's telling this uh, to, um, I'm like all messed up here. Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when he was old. My master. Yeah, he's talking to the family of Rebekah. Rebekah is going to be Isaac's wife. So he's talking to Rebekah and her family and he's recalling what Abraham said. He's going, Abraham told me the Lord will send his angel and prosper my way. And he did. Like He made this happen. Um, So I just wanted to quickly bring that up because Abraham seems to have uh, knowledge of or experience with the angel of God's presence. Genesis 48, this is what Jacob says on his deathbed as he's blessing um, Manasseh and Ephraim the two kids of Joseph. He blessed Joseph, so they are combined to be Joseph. They have his lot in the the tribes of Israel. The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. Remember we saw the angel having the authority to bless, or at least Jacob, wrestling with the man, who we see in Hosea is the angel, but also God, has the authority to bless. He's going, would you also bless these boys? Now, it's also interesting that we see the idea of the name here, let them carry my name. Um, The point is, I think when I read this, this is what it sounds like. He's stating the same thing in a different way. Uh, God has been my shepherd all my life long. The angel has redeemed me. Well, isn't it God who redeemed you? Well, you might go, well, through the angel he sent. And yet, he credits the angel, not to the, ex- not to the neglect of God. Jacob's not going, yeah, uh, this angel helped me. Thanks a lot, God, you didn't, you just sent him to. He's going, the angel redeemed me, which I believe is appropriate, if indeed what we've seen is true that the angel is in fact the the presence of God himself, which I've already showed my hand, and I believe, I truly believe, man, everything I've studied is that it is the sun. Um, Let's go to Genesis 21, and then we'll jump to a break real quick. Quick commercial break after this. This is cool, and this is where you start to see that yes, the angel of God is set forth as being God, Uh, yes, the angel of God is in fact the the presence of God, but at the same time, all of these narratives make the angel distinct from God. And I I, want to stop using angel because it just, all the cultural baggage that comes attached to that, you think a created spiritual messenger, and I I just want you to detach from that. So I'm going to think about what to say. I don't know what to say but I'm not gonna use the angel anymore. I'm gonna use, I'm just gonna say the presence of God. It's as if the presence of God is God himself, yet distinct from God. Does that make sense? That's where John gets the language of the word was with God and the word was God. That's where we get the, 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 the language of the exclusive angel of God is both God, yet distinct from God. So I'm just gonna say the presence of God from now on, this just seems biblically accurate. Genesis 21:16, we have Hagar who ran away. Or I think at this point in the narrative, um, we have Hagar sent away, and yes, with her son Ishmael. So she runs out of water, and she's out there in the freaking desert, right? She puts her child under one of the bushes. She went and sat down opposite of him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, love that measurement. For she said, let me, it's like, it's the length of like nine cars. Let me not look on the death of the child. She's not saying this like to anyone. She's just saying this out loud. I I don't want to look at my son die. Who would, who would? And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And guess who heard? Guess who intervenes? God heard the voice of the boy. Okay, note note that. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven, which we're gonna see in Genesis 22 with Abraham offering Isaac. The angel of God calls to Hagar from heaven and says, what troubles you, Hagar? Don't be afraid. God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. It's interesting. I just noted or noticed that God heard the voice of the boy but Hagar is the one that's said to be weeping and lifting up her voice. So I don't know what Ishmael's doing at this time. Lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand. Now watch, who's speaking here? The angel is speaking. As whatever he's saying, he's saying as himself. Lift up the boy, I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes. Let's just see, this isn't as confusing as it, as it initially seems once you see, oh, like there is the category of not polytheism, but as God being, uh, as a compound unity is the best way to explain it as the angel being God, yet distinct from, or the, the presence of God being distinct from God, yet God, God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, just like he said, and yet it was the angel saying that. Imagine the angel going. Typically, for instance, when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary or Zechariah, the angel will say what God will do, okay? And that's explicitly clear. The angel will come, like to Daniel... An angel, just a typical created spiritual, you know, like you see on a Saturday night, a spiritual messenger will come who is created by God and he'll say, hey, the Lord says, or the Lord God will, yet the angel here is saying, I will. He lived in the wilderness. The boy became an expert and he lived in the wilderness of Paran. But either way, okay, his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Egypt gets brought in a lot. Uh, Because she's from Egypt. And so the angel of the Lord talks about God, okay? Um, He says, what troubles you? God has heard the voice of the boy. So uh, picture this. The presence of God comes. He's called the angel of God. And he says, hey, God heard the voice of the boy. I'm going to make him into a great nation. As if to speak on, as with the authority and the power to do that. Um, so you can say that, well, God's given him the ability to do that. But I believe it's God who makes a nation out of Ishmael. Um, and the angel is the one clarifying that I will. This isn't the only time this happens, by the way. You're going to see the same thing. Uh, with Jacob and his dream, with Gideon, uh, with the burning bush, with Mount Sinai, uh, with Samson's parents, with Joshua, uh, the fiery furnace. Um, and so we'll tackle all that in a minute. Let me take a quick potty break and then we'll come right back. All right. If you've not already done this, go to Above Reproach Ministry.com. We have a bunch of free resources that are made available to anyone around the world, completely free and accessible to anyone who wants to learn how to read the Bible. We have free online Bible study courses that will teach you how to read the Bible. We have free study devotionals that walk you through specific patterns and keywords in the book of Ephesians. We have free Bible study worksheets. We have Bible study workshops. We have all this free content because of generous supporters like you guys. And if you want to support this ministry, we're teaching people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves. And there are a bunch of ways to donate. You can go to aboveapproachministry.com slash donate. You can give through debit or credit card you can send a check to Peelbox box 338 uh, green cove springs you can give through paypal cash app venmo Patreon. And then you can also get some church merch. If you've not already grabbed some church merch, I would recommend you do that so you can represent Jesus on your body. And all the proceeds go right back into this content so that we can reach more people and equip people to, you know, live and teach the Bible themselves. And if you didn't know this, I actually have a book. I've published a book. It's called Fruitful. And the point of this book is to be a resource to the church to teach people um, the essential keys for the most abundant Christian life this side of heaven. And so in this book, what I do is I I outline the gospel absolutely clearly (laughs) so you can actually know what the foundational truth is and then from there we discover what our purpose is what our process is and what our position is now in Christ so if you or a new believer, or if you're a believer that really wants to understand what I believe are the essential key truths that a lot of people don't understand in the church, I would grab a copy. And if you haven't already joined our online church, get in that online church. We have a lot of cool stuff happening, events every single day pretty much. Uh, we're in there praying and fellowshipping and gathering and growing together as a community. And the last thing is this, if you haven't already checked out our podcast, uh, we have podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and everywhere else where you can get a podcast and pretty much all the content on YouTube, the live streams, what we do is we um, make that into podcast format so you guys can just listen on the go. So go check that out if you have not already. And let's get back to the video. Okie dokie. Okay. Where did I leave off? This is boring for you. You are welcome to go and watch Spongebob or something. Like the kids do. Okay. Genesis 22 is where we're going now, Genesis 22. Remember, the Lord God tells Abraham, Hey, go and offer your son, your only son whom you love, who I promised on Mount Moriah, which is eventually where you'll see the temple get erected and David make a sacrifice in his time. So, nonetheless, the significance of the place is important, but. Uh, Abraham takes Isaac, and when they come to the place of which God told him, Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood in order, bound Isaac his son, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven. So who's talking here? The angel of God. He said, Abraham, whoa, hey! Abraham goes, hey, here I am. Hey, I didn't do anything. He said, don't lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God. So again, this is the angel talking about God. Yet, the next statement, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. When did the angel of God have anything to do with this? Didn't God tell Abraham? Exactly. Exactly, you're starting to get it. Abraham lifted up his eyes, looked, and behold, uh, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket. God provides. Abraham went, took the ram, offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Now, the angel of God will continue talking. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Because you've done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. Now again, who is it that has the ability to bless in Genesis 48, the angel of God, in Genesis 32, the angel of God, in Exodus 23, Seems to be the angel of God. And this is not to the exclusion of the Lord. This is perfect. We're trying to, we're starting to understand the nature uh, of God's compound unity. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And as the sand on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. Because you've obeyed my voice. Okay. And so you might say, well, the angel of God is saying, hey, the Lord declares this, and it's like, now I'm talking on behalf of God. By myself I have sworn. And you you can have that, that's fine. Um, But I I do believe to be consistent with this, it is the angel of God saying, God says, and I say, as if the the two are blurred at times. Which one is it? It's almost like you're not supposed to see that dividing line Yet that dividing line does appear at times. Uh, same kind of similar thing happens with Jacob at Bethel, not Bethel Church in Reading, but the O.G. Bethel says. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, um, or sorry, this is not him at Bethel. I thought this was. This is Jacob uh, recalling to Rachel and Leah uh, what God said, or what the angel of God said to him in a dream. He's currently living with Laban doing hard work, no return, Laban's cheating him, God's got his back. Um, And it says, the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, sorry, that was poor, Jacob. And I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flocks that are striped, modded. I've seen all that Laban is doing to you. Now who said this? The angel of God. Does he say, hey, thus says the Lord, this is what God says, this is what God sent me to tell you, but he's saying it, not me. No, this is the angel of God personally saying, I am telling you, in verse 13, I am the God of Bethel. In other words, who is it that met Jacob in the dream at Bethel when he laid his head down on a rock? It was the angel of God, yet God. (laughs) where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. So the angel of God directs Jacob, uh, takes care of Jacob, speaks as God to him. Um, And I I just think this is um, something we should really pay attention to. Something you should really pay attention to. It's really cool. Because there are those who argue against Jesus being God in the flesh and they just fundamentally misunderstand the the nature of the Godhead and and who God has revealed himself to be as a compound, unified, transcendent being that we can't fully understand with our limited brains. Um, In Genesis 48, uh, we already read this, but um, this is what Michael Heiser says in his book, Unseen Realm, about this passage about Jacob saying the angel who has redeemed the boys from all evil. Uh, Genesis 48 has Jacob combined the angel of the Lord and the Lord is one. In Hebrew, the verb bless, right here, bless the boys. In this passage, it's not grammatically plural, which would indicate two different persons are being asked to bless the boys. Rather, it's singular, thereby telegraphing a tight fusion of the two divine beings on the part of the author. And Again, this is not polytheism. In other words, the writer had a clear opportunity to distinguish the God of Israel from the angel, but instead, he, he somewhat merges their identities. Let's go to the burning bush. The burning bush. Exodus 31, not 31, three, Exodus three. Okay, watch this. It says, now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, this is before He becomes uh, the helper to Israel. He's taking care of flocks, just like Jacob, just like Joseph, just like David. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, which is gonna be Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him. Pause. Who appears to Moses? The angel of the Lord. How does he appear to him? in a flame of fire. Why is that important? Because God is going to lead Israel in a pillar of fire, which is said to be the angel of God. Because God is going to appear on Mount Sinai to Moses again when, he, when they're rescued out of Egypt. He's going to appear in thick darkness and a cloud and fire. And in Acts 7, Stephen will look back and say, that's actually the angel of the Lord appearing to Moses again on Mount Sinai. We're going to talk about that. So he, he appears in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it wasn't consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord, now here we see the Lord now, watch. The Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called. So look, <laughs> it's not hard. Biblical authors can make it very clear when God is speaking. They go, well, God said, the Lord said. The the fact that they're not that clear, the fact that they're uh, blurring the line somewhat between God and the angel of God, means they're trying to telegraph you something. Uh, watch, the Lord saw that he turned aside to see. God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Okay, so who's calling out of the bush? God. Who sees Moses turn aside? The Lord. But who is it that appeared to Moses in the bush? The angel of the Lord, okay? And he said, here I am. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face. He was afraid to look at God. Now, what possibly could Moses have seen that he was covering his eyes from seeing? The only thing we are told he sees is a flame of fire in a bush that is not consuming the bush. And it does say the angel of God appeared to him in that flame of fire. Whatever that looked like, terrifying sight. Probably. Is it a, uh, a human form on fire standing in a bush like a Tuesday night, or is it actually just a flame of fire? And that fire is representative of the presence of God, the angel of God being there either way. He's afraid to look at God presumably being the fire in the bush that is said to be the angel appearing. So this is what, again, Michael Heiser says in Unseen Realm. I like taking his stuff because I'm going to say it and explain it. I'm not taking it, though. just expounding on what he says. The text quite clearly states that the angel of God was in the bush. In verse 2, right? Can we all agree the angel of God's in the bush? But when Moses turns to look at it, in verse 3, the text has Yahweh, or the Lord. um, Verse 4, rather, sorry, verse 4. The Lord um, saw. So, both the angel, the visible presence of God in human form, and the invisible Yahweh are characters in the burning bush scene. In other words, watch this. There's an unseen presence and there's a visible presence. What does Jesus say? He says, when you see me, you see the father, I and the father are one. You see how we're starting to build that, that category for one who is God, the presence of God among his people, yet distinct from God. And there's also the unseen God behind him, the visible and the invisible. So verse six tells us Moses was afraid to look at God. This suggests that he discerned something other than fire in the bush. Most likely, there was, again, this is most likely, and we're not gonna say this is for certain, but most likely, the human form of the angel was within the fire. The New Testament affirms this description in Acts chapter seven, verse 30. The, the martyr, Stephen, twice tells us there was an angel in the bush. So let's go there. Acts chapter seven, Stephen's standing on trial, kind of, And he's about to be brutally murdered, the first official martyr of the New Testament church. And this is what Stephen says. Okay, this is what Stephen says. He's recalling the Exodus narrative and the wilderness wanderings and Mount Sinai. Okay, he goes, when 40 years had passed, Uh, sorry, he's recalling, before he gets to that, he's recalling Moses' life and this experience in Exodus 3. Stephen's looking back and explaining to the religious leaders how the burning bush scene points to Jesus. So he goes, When 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses, right? In the wilderness of Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed. And as he drew near to to look, there came the voice of the Lord. And he said, I'm the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses was, he did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet. The place you're standing is holy ground. The only other time I can think of that's gonna be said is when Joshua sees uh, the commander of the Lord's army with a drawn sword. The Lord said, take off the sandals from your feet. The place where you're standing is holy ground. I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their, their groaning and I've come down to deliver them. And now come, I'll send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Okay? You go down to verse 38, I believe. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai he received living oracles to give to us. So now Stephen is recalling when Moses goes up to get the laws for Israel and who is there to meet him on Mount Sinai? He says, it's the angel. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused, right? And so the point of this is Stephen looking back, at the Exodus narrative, isn't misinterpreting it, isn't adding things there that aren't there. He's clarifying, especially now seeing it through the lens of Jesus. Think of Jesus as the visible presence of God and the Father as the invisible presence. The same thing happening here. Same thing happening here In in Exodus 3, in the burning bush. We have the angel appearing, appearing how? In a visible form, flame of fire. And then the unseen presence of God is behind speaking. If you go to Leviticus 25.1, Numbers 3.1, and Exodus 19.20, all those passages say the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. And yet, we see Stephen clarifying it was actually uh, the angel of God, the same one that appeared in the uh, burning bush is the one appearing on Mount Sinai to Moses, a part of the whole giving of the law process. Pretty cool, man. I mean, this is why like Jesus coming on the scene and being like saying the things he says, it's not blasphemy, it's not confusing, it's not misinterpreting, it's like everything you see in the Old Testament, those categories, he he just fits it oh so neatly. Um and you're supposed to see that. You're supposed to see that it is in fact um well, we'll get to that when we get to that. We will get to that when we get to that. Alright. Um I see on TikTok Paula or Leandra, whoever's there, can you just mute Uh, Josie, Jose, whatever his name is, just fill in the comments with madness so you have my permission to mute slash block him. I don't don't care. Um, Let's go on. Judges six, if you're gonna cause mayhem and madness, don't think you won't get consequences. Judges six, the angel of God appears to Gideon. Okay, the angel of God appears to Gideon. Same kind of thing happening where Jacob saw God, or the Lord appeared to Abraham. Now, the angel of the Lord, he came and sat under the terebinth in Ophrah. I think I said it right. Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the... the, 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 That is right. Just, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the vine press, sounds very violent, to hide it from the Midianites. So we have a cowardly Gideon, Hiding from the enemy because, I mean, you would too. I would too. Midianites just take everything and plunder and blech. And then the angel of the Lord appeared. To who? To Gideon. And said, the Lord is with you. Speaking about the Lord. Yet, you're about to see the same thing we've seen already transpire. It's going to happen again. Where the angel of God is blurred with the Lord. The Lord is with you, a mighty man of valor. And Gideon said, please... My Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened? Where's all the wonderful deeds our fathers recounted to us, saying, didn't the Lord bring us up from Egypt? The Lord has forsaken us. He's given us into Midian. And the Lord turned to him, like, oh, you want to talk smack? Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? Where the heck did the Lord come from? And he said, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Now, who in the world is Gideon talking to, an invisible voice? It does say the angel of the Lord appeared, just as he appeared in human form to Jacob, to Abraham. um, I believe at the burning bush scene, there's a human form thing happening there too. Um, Seems to be going on here with Gideon. The angel of the Lord appeared, and he's just talking to a man, man. Man, man? Please, Lord, how in the world can I save Israel? He doesn't know who he's talking to yet. Note that. He just thinks he's talking to a person. Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and the least in Would you talk smack to someone right in front of their face? Well, depending on who they are, some of you might. But when it's God, I don't think you're gonna talk like that. Listen, if God's with us, why'd he do this all? Why'd he, if he rescued us from Egypt, why did he give us into the hand of Midian? Gideon does not know who he's talking to yet. And the Lord said to him, ah, I'll be with you, and you'll strike the Midianites as one man. And he said, look, if I found favor in your eyes, show me a sign that it is you who speaks with me. So he's, he's starting to get an idea, right? The Lord said, I'll be with you. Oh, are you who I think you are? Please don't depart from here until I, until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. That's what Abraham did, right? Genesis 18, three men passed by. He goes, whoa. Let me bring you something. Let me offer something. And he said, I'll stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house, prepared a young goat, unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour, the meat, you can go back to the Levitical law to see why he's doing this. The meat he put in a basket, the broth he put in a pot, and he brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them, and the angel of God. Who, who, is it God? Well, so far the Lord's been talking to him. He's going, I'll bring you an offering. And the angel of God said, take the meat, the unleavened cakes, put them on this rock, pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff in his hand. So there's a visible kind of physical form of God taking place right in front of Gideon. He does not know that he's in the presence of God. And and you'll know that when we get to verse 22. And fire sprang up from the rock. Remember, I said fire is very representative of God's presence. Fire sprang up from the rock, consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And watch this the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. What does that mean? That means the angel of God appeared to him in a visible, recognizable form Gideon could handle and manage. But it's God appearing. And he vanished. No angel would take an offering sacrifice this is God receiving the offering and sacrifice then Gideon perceived what did he perceived that he was the angel of the Lord now pause why is that a big deal whoa the angel of God Gideon understands what a lot of Christians don't about the angel of God in the Old Testament watch Gideon said alas O Lord God I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Alas, why is this a scary thing? Why is it a big, because we know Moses says, no one can see the Lord and live. And yet there's a way that God allows people to see a part of him, the visible presence of himself without seeing the full scope of his presence and glory. So the Lord said, peace be to you. Don't fear, you won't die. Then Gideon built an altar. There to the Lord and called it the Lord is peace. So there's fear, not because of like an angel. We, we've seen angels appear to Lot and his daughters and like they'll treat them with honor, but for Lot and, and his family, it was just like, welcome in just a couple of cousins who are in town. There's honor and there's respect there, but it's not like, oh God. There are some times where angels do appear then they strike fear into the hearts of people. But this is not happening here. The appearance of the angel is not frightening or terrifying. It's the presence of who Gideon knows is in front of him after the offering is accepted. He goes, if it's just an angel, there's no reason to react like this. But he recognizes that the Lord is in his midst. That's why the Lord says, peace, don't fear, you won't die. You won't die. Remember Jacob, I've seen the face of God and lived. Um, I've seen God face to face and live when he wrestled with the man at night. Just like you do when a random guy just, just barges into your camp and starts tackling you and you go, must be God. Let me wrestle him till I get blessed. Judges 13, um, we have the angel of God appear to Samson's parents. I know this is a lot. I know this is a lot. And I'm trying to pace myself so y'all don't get overwhelmed. But... You need, the, the more I build this, the I think the stronger your foundation will be. It takes time, man. Foundations take time. Solid, strong foundations, theologically speaking, take time. So let's be patient and let's build. Judges 13, we have the angel of God once again doing what? Appearing to the woman who's Samson's mama. She's barren, and he says, Behold, you are barren, and you've not born children. Wow, thanks for the freaking reminder. (laughs) You shall conceive and bear a son. Whoa, that's good news, right? Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink. Eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So the son's gonna be a Nazarite. Have the Nazarite vow. No razor shall come upon his head. The child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. He shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So the angel of God speaks about God, right? Yet he's gonna speak as God, just as we've seen with Gideon, with Moses, with Hagar, with Jacob, with you name it. Okay, the woman came and told her husband, a man of God, pause. Why does she think it's a man of God? Because once again, the angel of God appearing is in human form. In other words, whenever the visible presence of God manifests to a person, it is in a recognizable human form they can handle. I've said this over and over. So when you see the angel of God appearing, think, oh, human form, God is revealing his presence. It's what we call, when we get to this in in our study, a Christophany. It's when Jesus pre-incarnation before he takes on human nature when he appears to people. A man of God came to me and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Imagine, imagine being with the angel of God and you're like, and you go tell your husband, there's a guy out here who's like the angel of God. And then he goes, I am the the angel of God. I didn't ask him where he was from and he didn't tell me his name. Remember when Jacob goes, what's your name? Forget my name, I'll rename you. But he said to me, behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine, um, strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Um, Skip down to verse 15. And Manoah, her husband, sees the angel of God. Okay? So the angel of God appears again. And he says, please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. Third time we've seen this. Abraham, Gideon, and now Samson's mom and dad. They're in the presence of a visible, the visible angel of God, which is the visible presence of God himself. And they, they know, I got to bring something. It's, it's, it's innate to their theology and understanding of the Lord. An offering is required. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, um, I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord. In other words, I, I, don't think, I think the angel of God is saying, look, I ain't going to eat your food, but bring an offering the way you'd bring it to God. For Manoah didn't know that he was the angel of the Lord. This is a big deal, guys. This is a big deal. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, I'm going to highlight it every time. What is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said, why do you seek my name? Why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. Isaiah 9 speaks of Jesus, the promised son. His name will be wonderful counselor, mighty God. And so the angel of the Lord here, again, people want to know his name. Why is that? Why do you ask my name? It's wonderful. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering, offered it on the rock to the Lord. Who's the offering to? To God, okay? To the one who works wonders. It's interesting that that is the description of God here after saying my name is wonderful. And Manoah and his wife were watching and when the flame, remember how I said the presence of God often indicated by flame, fire, tongues of fire, uh, fire coming down from heaven on Mount Carmel, um, fire in the burning bush, fire on Mount Sinai, fire of judgment, breaking out in the wilderness, fire coming on the city. The presence of God is often indicated by fire. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now watch what happens. Look at how Manoah and his wife respond. They fall to the ground on their faces and the angel of God appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. You're about to find out why Gideon responds the way he does and why Jacob responds the way he does where they go, I'm going to die or he spared my life and let me see him. Manoah knew he was the angel of the Lord and Manoah said to his wife, we're going to die. We've seen God. This is not we've seen a representative of God. This is not we've seen a messenger from God. This is not we've seen a created spiritual being who was sent on behalf of God as carrying his... This is we've seen God. And the text doesn't, you know, correct that and go, but they didn't, you know. His wife said, if the Lord had meant to kill us, the Lord. So they are now blurring the lines. It's good, though. Blurring the lines between the Lord and the angel of God. If he wanted to kill us, he wouldn't have accepted a burnt offering. In other words, the angel of God accepted the offering from their hands. So you can see why there is a category for one who is the Lord yet distinct from the Lord. The lines get blurred on purpose. It's on purpose that you have to seek these things out. It's on purpose that you have to study to show yourself approved and spend hours just meditating and making sense. It's it's, it's on purpose that the complexity of God's nature is not easily handled by the human mind. It's on purpose. We want God to be this, what, who you have decided he is? You don't decide who God is, you discover who he is. And so you're either gonna disagree with God and his word after this, and go, no, Jesus isn't God. Or you're going to agree, but it has nothing to do with me. I'm just the messenger. You can see it clearly for yourself. The angel of God appears to Joshua, at least as the commander of the army. So Joshua was by Jericho. He lifts up his eyes and a man was standing before him. Who was standing before him? Once again, a man <laughs> with his drawn sword in his hand. Um, this is what Michael Heiser says about this. Uh, Joshua 5 has the angel of Yahweh as unmistakably Yahweh. An important clue to identifying this man as the angel of Yahweh is the fact that his sword is drawn in his hand. The Hebrew phrase here, sword drawn in his hand, occurs only two other times. Numbers 22:23 23 and 1 Chronicles 21, 16. Both of those, the only other accounts of this phrase, applies to the uh, angel of God as the one with the drawn sword in his hand. In other words, you're supposed to know by now, you of course, judges happens after this, but without Gideon and Samson's parents, you should know by now reading the narrative and experiencing God as the nation of Israel, that this is in fact, the angel of God, which we know to be God. Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our, ad- for our adversaries? He, he said, no. Like when I asked my son, do you want to go outside or stay inside? I want to go to the trampoline place. That that wasn't an option, buddy. This guy just does not take either of Joshua's options. For us, against us. No, I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. I have come. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said, what does my Lord say to his servant? Now, does the commander of the Lord's army say, don't worship me? Hey, whoa, whoa, I'm not God. Take it easy, buddy. We see the angels, like angels, spiritual beings created by God. We see angels who, uh, you know, people bow down to worship and they go, stop, no, I'm just, don't bow down to me. We see this with John the apostle in Revelation. Um, I'm trying to think who else, Uh, where else do angels reject worship? I don't, I wanna pull it up real quick actually. Because sure, that's a good cue, but if that's the case, this is we're not we're told not to worship angels explicitly in Galatians, Revelation twenty two, John bows down and the angel goes no, don't do that. Um, Colossians tells us not to worship angels. So I, I was trying to look for another instance where angels reject worship, but. The point is, angels, angelic beings, spiritual beings created by God reject worship. This fella, the commander of the Lord's army, which presumably is the angel of God, is gladly receiving worship? What does my Lord say to his servant? The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet. The place where you're standing is holy. This is, this is an angel with an ego, or. This is in fact the very presence of God himself. The only other time the the sandals are taken off, this place is holy, is the, the burning bush. Where God says, take off your sandals, you're standing on holy ground, the angel of God is present as the visible expression of God in the burning bush. Same idea here, okay? In Daniel 3, 28, Nebuchadnezzar throws Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the flaming furnace, okay, watch what happens. And his counselors go, hey, or Nebuchadnezzar tells his counselors, hey, didn't we throw three men into the fire? Notice how fire is present. They answered and said to the king, yeah, why are you asking? He said, because I see four men. Unbound, once again, another human form at least, someone who looks like a person. They're walking in the midst of the fire and they're not hurt. The appearance of the fourth is like, uh, like their their category for what they see is, Nebuchadnezzar's like a a son of the gods, I, I don't know. And then verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar answers and goes, "'Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, who has sent his angel, which again, not just an angel, but his own personal, the angel of his presence, and delivered his servants who trusted in him. So who's there in the fiery furnace? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, the angel of God? Looking like another person? Uh, Daniel 6:22. Don't look at the screen, you'll get dizzy. Uh, Daniel 622. Daniel said to the king, O oh, king, live forever. Um, my God." oh, so this is Daniel in the lion's den. That's right. And then king, what is his name? Not Ahasuerus, that's after this. Um, Bro, King Darius, thank you. King Darius is going, Daniel, you good? And Daniel said to the king, king, live forever. My God sent his angel. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he shut the lion's mouth, and they haven't harmed me because I was, I, I was found blameless before him. And I've done no harm. So who was with Daniel in the lion's den? The angel, the presence of God. Um, and second, now I want you to think about for a minute, because remember, the, the three conclusions I've drawn so far is that number one, the angel of God is the presence of God, visible presence of God in human form, right? Who is distinct from God, yet God. That's number one. Number two, I believe that Jesus is in fact the angel of God in the Old Testament, the visible presence of, of, of the Lord, Number three, think about the connection between Jesus and David, right? David is a Christ type, King David. Jesus is the greater David. He comes from the line of David, from the tribe of Judah, right? Built on the house of David, right? So he sits on the throne of David. David and Jesus, the boys. Now, 2 Samuel 14, 17 has, uh, I forget who it is, but... Um, your servant thought the word of my Lord the king will set me at rest for my Lord the king is like the angel of God. Um, This is, the woman said, please let your servant speak a word to my Lord the king. He said, speak. And the woman said, why have you planned such a thing against the people and giving the king convicts himself over water spilling? But God will not take away life. He devises, now I've come to say this to my Lord the king because the people have made me afraid. I think Joab has sent a woman to try and get King David to do something, if I remember correctly. Uh, a woman of Tekoa comes to the king. That's right. Death riot. And the woman said, okay, so yeah. So this woman comes to David, and, but notice what she says about him. That all I want you to notice is the description. My lord, the king, King David, is like the angel of God. In what way? To discern good and evil. To discern good and evil. Okay, why would you liken uh, King David to the actual presence of God? Well, there's discernment and wisdom and knowledge there that can only come from the presence of God, that the angel of God demonstrates. Uh, 1 Samuel nineteen twenty-seven. 27, um, again, my Lord the king is like the angel of God. Do whatever seems good to you because he knows how to discern good and evil. Not perfectly, but... You know, he has the wisdom and the discernment of God, which is demonstrated by the angel of God or the presence of God. It's interesting that King David is likened to the angel of God. And if that being Jesus, it would make total sense um, because of Jesus's connection to David. So let me take you to the New Testament real quick to show you why we do this, why we do this, that. The angel of God, which I'm calling the visible presence of God in human form, is in fact God, yet distinct from God. And this is what John says in his gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things are made through him, and nothing exists without him. He sustains all things, he's the method of creating all things, he's with God, he's God. How is this possible? The word does this come from? It comes from the Old Testament. The word put on flesh and dwelt among us, Uh, we've seen his glory. All these ideas come together, man. So I know you're wondering, you've said nothing about the word of God. Have I though? Have I? So let's, let's pause for a minute. Let's establish what we, what we know, okay? We know that God does appear in the Old Testament in visible human form in a way that people can handle and recognize without Exodus 33:20 being violated, that no one can behold the face of God and live. And, and, okay, if that's the case, God appearing to uh, Abraham, God appearing to uh, Jacob, Gideon, Samson, Moses, God appearing to, I believe, Hagar from what I remember. Either way, God appears a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. I also want you to see this. Okay, we've established those things that I truly believe the angel of God is the presence, the visible presence of God, God himself yet distinct from God. That God does appear to people as what is referred to as the word of God. Genesis 15, 1 through 6. Abraham is about to make, this is a big moment in Israel's patriarchal history. Like in, in Abraham's life as the patriarch, this is a big covenant moment after these things, the word of the Lord came, came to Abraham in a vision. Now you might say, well, this is just God communicating his words and his truth in a visionary experience. If that's all this is, that's fine. But the language used seems to indicate more than just God wants to tell you something, Abraham, so he's gonna give you a vision of what he wants to tell you. This seems to be the word of God coming or appearing is a person doing something with a message in a vision. So the word of the Lord comes, fear not Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, oh Lord God, what will you give me? I continue childless. The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, you've given me no offspring. A member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him again. This man shall not uh, be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Now, he brought him outside. Is this Abraham bringing God outside? I don't believe so. I believe this is God bringing Abraham outside, but how? How do you bring someone outside? You can say, well, he guided him out. He said, look toward heaven. He, of course, is the Lord, we're not denying that. But he, more specifically, seems to be the word of the Lord as a person, bringing Abraham outside. And we'll go to 1 Samuel 3, Jeremiah 1 and 1 Kings 19 to make this more concrete. But he says, look at heaven, number the stars if you're able to. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. Guess what Abraham does? He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, the fact that he brings him outside, we pick him up and just you know chuck him outside the house or did he go come on let's go outside buddy like the good shepherd bringing some someone somewhere i only show you that as foundational to what you're about to see first samuel 3 we have little boy samuel he this is what the text says samuel is a you might say he's a he's a priest in the making uh he's a he doesn't know it but he's a prophet in the making. And he's tending to uh, the, there's no temple yet, but the tabernacle duties with Eli the high priest. So it's a kind of mentorship happening. Um, And he's there to serve the Lord by helping Eli. Okay. So Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare. There was no frequent vision. Notice how the vision here, is the kind of word he's referring to. And I don't believe this is a mental vision of the mind or a vision in your dreams or a vision you have with your eyes closed or some kind of like um, Peter, he has a vision while he's in a trance. I don't believe that's what's happening. I believe this is a, with the physical eyes, a visual experience of the word of God. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim, which is, you know, interesting that he says that right after he says there's no frequent vision. Eli physically blind also kind of captures the spiritual blindness of the people and Eli himself, okay? The lamp of God had not yet gone out. Samuel's lying down in the temple where the ark of God was. This is very important. He is near the actual ark, which was representative and actually the presence of God among his people. The Lord called Samuel. Who's calling Samuel? The Lord is. And he said, here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, you called me? And he goes, no, go lay down, you weirdo. The Lord called again, Samuel. Samuel goes, Eli, what's up, buddy? Eli goes, I didn't call you, go lay down. Samuel did not yet know the Lord. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Meaning, there's a voice speaking, but it wasn't revealed to him who was speaking. The Lord called Samuel again. He goes to Eli, Eli, what? And Eli goes, oh, the Lord's calling you. So he goes, Samuel, go lay down. If he calls you, say, speak, Lord. I'm listening. The Lord came and the Lord stood. Now you you might say, well, this is just speaking of the fact that God is present. He's concretely there. It doesn't mean there's a physical, visible experience of God happening, but it does say he came and he stood calling, noting the difference between the word going forth and his actual presence with Samuel. So there's a word going forth and there's the actual presence of God among Samuel standing there. The Lord said, I'm about to do a thing in Israel. And he tells Samuel what he's going to do. Now, Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. Eli called Samuel and said, surely my son, um, Samuel, my son, not surely, surely temple. he said, here I am. And Eli said, what did God tell you? Uh, mm, uh, Pretty much God told Samuel, I'm going to remove Eli's house. It's not something you want to tell someone who is training you up. Samuel grew and the Lord was with him. He let none of his words fall to the ground. All of Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. Now watch. Look at the language, okay? You think I'm building a case out of jelly beans. I'm not. I promise you, I'm not. Okay? Look at what happens. The Lord appeared again. So that confirms what I just said that there's an actual visible experience, an appearance of God to Samuel. Not only does he call, and Samuel's like, Who's there? Once he responds and goes, Oh, it's you. Right? Once he responds, the Lord comes and stands. Or the Lord comes and stands as at other times. Calling as at other times. And he appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Ah! It's so much happening. So, it goes like this. God reveals himself to Samuel. How? By the word of the Lord. Which seems to be... The appearance of God in a visual capacity, in a visual experience. God reveals himself by what is referred to as the word of the Lord. What seems to be happening, and this is not a stretch, is that the word of God, the actual revelation of God called the word of God, comes and stands with Samuel. It's an appearance to samuel to tell him what the lord says so just as we saw the angel of god is often blurred with god himself the word of god is also having that same blurring effect where it's like the word of god it comes forth from his mouth and comes out of him but it's also the word of god is referred to as god um Jeremiah 1, 6 through 9. Uh, Jeremiah is told, you're going to be a prophet. And he goes, "Ah, wrong guy. Lord God, I don't know how to speak. And God's like, you too? You know, I knew a guy. His name's Moses. I'm only a youth. But the Lord said to me, the Lord is speaking. The Lord is speaking to some of you. He says, don't say I'm only a youth. What about David? To all to whom I send you, you're going to go. Whatever I command you, you're going to speak that. Don't be afraid of the people I'm sending you to. I'm with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Now watch. You have to remember, in verse 4, I didn't show you this earlier, but the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. And it was this, I formed you, I consecrated you, I appointed you. Jeremiah goes, "I, hey, little boy. And God goes, don't say that. I will, I will make you afraid. Then the Lord put out his hand. Okay. The Lord put out his hand and he touched my mouth. Where did God come from? Like to, to actually touch the mouth of Jeremiah with his hand. Where did that come from? All we saw is that the word of God came. And Jeremiah answers that word with, nope, not me. I am, uh, like in dodgeball, or uh, was it dodgeball? warmers. I am 12. Right? He goes, I, I am 12. I don't care how old you are. I'm going to use you. And the Lord actually puts out his hand, touches the mouth of Jeremiah, And he says, I have put my words in your mouth. Is this symbolic? Is it metaphorical? Is it visionary? Is it purely uh, happening in a a vision of Jeremiah's mind? It's not extremely clear. Just that the word of God came. And then the Lord is said to put out his hand and touch the mouth. Similar to Isaiah, except an angel is brought to hold some coals to Isaiah's mouth. This is God personally touching the mouth of Jeremiah. So you and I have to ask, where in the world did the Lord come from? All we see is his word. Exactly, exactly. There's an appearance happening. You might say, well, it's a vision. It's still an appearance. He's seeing God, if if not with his physical eyes, at least with his mind's eye. In the eyes of his heart, Jeremiah is seeing God put out his hand and he's touching his mouth. But the Lord here is, in fact, the Word of God coming to him. Not just to tell him what to do, but to effectively do something that would allow Jeremiah to be the mouthpiece he needs to be. In 1 Kings chapter 19, I think this is a relevant passage. Um, Elijah has run away because he heard there's an angry lady. Her name is Jezebel, and she's like, I'ma kill you. It's interesting, he had like the guts to face anyone. All of a sudden, a woman gets in the picture. This woman is terrifyingly evil. So he runs away, he comes to a cave, he lodges in it, and behold, watch, same idea uh, that we saw with Abraham, the word of the Lord came, same with Samuel, the word of the Lord came, appearing, revealing, Same with Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came and touched the mouth of Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came and he said to him. Then you might say, well, it's implying that the Lord is speaking by his word. I think the he is more appropriately the actual word of God, but I digress. What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. People of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with a sword and even I, I, I'm left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. Who is he? Who who is he? Because he's talking about the Lord as if he's someone else. This should fry your brain. This is beautiful truth that should fry your brain and make you stand in awe of God. So the word of the Lord comes. He says, Go out, stand on the mountain before the Lord. Aren't you the Lord? Yeah, but complicated. And behold, the Lord passed by. A great strong wind tore the mountains, broken pieces, the rocks, before the Lord. The Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake, and that a fire, the Lord was not in the fire or the earthquake. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. In other words, his word. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice. What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord. The people have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets. I'm the only one left. I want you to see that when we get to the New Testament, and Jesus claims to be what you and I don't even have categories to understand. He is he is the Word of God. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.14, the Word became flesh. He's the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Revelation 19, verse 13, the one who comes faithful and true, riding with a flame of fire in his eyes. On his head were many crowns. There's a name written that no one knows but himself, which lets go there because guess what? Here's another connection. Remember the angel of God? At least three times from what I can remember, maybe two, the angel of God is, is asked, what's your name? You know, by Samson's parents, by Jacob, and I be- if, if not Gideon, then there's two, okay? Two times, what's your name? Uh, You don't need to know my name. Second time, what's your name? My name is wonderful. Why are you asking me? Revelation 19, there's one sitting on a white horse, the heavens open, he comes in righteousness, he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, on his head are many crowns. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. Why didn't the angel of the Lord The presence of God, visible presence of God. Just tell people his name. Why is it that Jesus has a name written, no one knows but himself? What's so important about the name? He's clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he's called, it's right there, the Word of God. The Word of God. The eternal word emanating from the Father. Come into our world, taking on human flesh, the visible presence of God. God in the flesh. That's who Jesus is. Now the word always notes truth. This is why in John 14:6, Jesus can say, I'm the way, I am the truth, and I'm the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. This is why Ephesians 4.21 will say the truth is in Jesus. So what's interesting is the angel of God doesn't show up anymore once the Messiah is born. You see angels, you see messengers, you see other spiritual angelic beings, but not the angel of God who has the authority to forgive sins, transgressions, bless the name is in him. He's the presence of God visibly in the form of man. Why? Why is that? Why is the word of God appearing in the Old Testament to the same people that God appears to, but he's called the angel of God. They are all the same. Sometimes the word of God is what he's called to note the truth and the fact that he emanates from the father's mouth. Sometimes he's referred to as the angel of God to note he's the actual visible presence in human form of God, but he hasn't taken on human nature yet. Not until he comes at the incarnation and he's born of the Virgin Mary. Did you see how this all comes together? Now I wrote down every instance of not just the angel, but an angel to note like just spiritual messengers, spiritual beings that God has made. Um, I could go through all the texts, it's a long list. I've noted every instance of the word angels, angelic beings, multiple, not the exclusive angel of God's presence, but actual angelic beings, and I have a long list of that. Here's what I'll end with. There are some who believe that Jesus is Michael the archangel. I have reason to fundamentally disagree. Okay? I have my reasons, and they're biblical. Okay. In Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, there's only a couple places where Michael is named. Apart from like the Enoch literature and such, Daniel 10, 13, Daniel 12, Jude 1, and Revelation 12 are essentially the only times that you see Michael. Daniel 10, 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me. This is Michael. Uh, uh, this is the one who comes to Daniel. He says, I was held up. Sorry, my guy. 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes came to help me. The fact that Michael is noted as one among many chief princes tells me he's not exclusively different or unique. He is, in fact, one among many of the chief princes. Jesus, he's sorry, he's exclusively the only begotten son of God. Daniel 10, 21, he says, I'll tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. Michael is described as a prince, uh, someone who is, seems to be appointed by God for Israel and for Daniel. Okay that is very different than Jesus being the king of kings and the prince of peace this is not uh, noting salvation or redemption just that I believe scripture talks about spiritual beings who are actually appointed over di- different nations and Michael is appointed the lot of uh, helping Daniel and helping Israel as a, he's appointed as their you know angel or prince in that sense in Daniel 12: Michael is actually the great prince um, over the people of Israel contrasted with the son of man. So at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. (laughs) There shall be a time of trouble such as has never been since there was a nation till that time. At that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Um, Daniel has a vision of the son of man, the one who rides on the clouds, approaches the ancient of days, and is human, yet he's divine. That is exactly what we have been describing in the Old Testament, except without human nature. That's why Jesus, the word of God, the angel of God's presence, finally puts on human flesh and assumes not just a human form, but assumes human nature, puts on flesh. Daniel is a different character in Daniel, or uh, sorry, Michael is a different character in Daniel's writings than the son of man is. In Jude 1.9, it speaks of Michael. um, He doesn't assume authority, inherent authority to rebuke Satan. Uh, When the archangel Michael contending with the devil, when he was disputing about the body of Moses, he didn't presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, the Lord, rebuke you. In other words, it would have been blasphemous judgment for Michael to assume the place of inherent authority and power to tell the devil what to do and where to go. Instead, he relies on the Lord's authority and what the Lord will do and what the God of the heavens will do to, to the devil. That's very different than Jesus in the wilderness having the authority within himself to contend with the devil. Uh, I mean, he literally tells... In other words, Michael had to say, "The Lord rebuke you." In Matthew four, Jesus says, um, "Be gone, Satan! Get out of here!" Like he has the authority and the power to actually demand Satan leaves. That that doesn't seem to be something Michael inherently has, the archangel. In Revelation twelve seven, uh, war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels were fighting against the dragon, the serpent of old, the devil, I believe. The, dra- the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Um, this seems to be uh, possibly referring to pre-creation, if at least for sure pre-incarnation, meaning before Jesus assumes human flesh. Um, so here, Michael fights against the dragon, uh, while where is it? Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. And they've conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Speaking of those who actually overcome the enemy, it's the blood of the lamb that gives them victory. Whereas Michael in heaven are, yeah, in heaven fighting against the dragon and his angels uh, seems to be different than the lamb. So Michael fights against the dragon while the lamb is a different character. We know that to be Jesus. Uh, John the Baptist says, behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And, and the lamb's blood gives people on earth victory over the dragon. Whereas Michael, he's doing things in heaven against the dragon. And once the dragon comes down, uh, it seems as though, well, what about human beings? Well, we need authority and power and, and victory. And Jesus's blood gives us that. Something I guess Michael couldn't. And so, you know, there are some that like see a hint. Maybe there's like glimpses of Jesus in what Michael does. But I, I don't believe that um, Jesus is Michael the archangel, or Michael the archangel is a stand-in for Jesus. I don't see that. What I do believe is in the Old Testament, the word of God appearing, God appearing, and the angel of God's presence appearing is just Jesus showing up. That's why there's the visible presence and the invisible presence kind of meshed together at all these different points. So some of you tuned out two hours ago, five minutes in. This isn't your thing. I get it. I get it. It's a lot of heavy work. There's a lot of scripture. It's a lot of like exhausting your brain and hitting that limit eventually. (laughs) So my my suggestion, hey, to you is to go and just sit with the truth. Just pray because we're not done. This is episode two. We're just building the case so far that yes, Jesus is in fact... The logic goes like this. The angel of God, the word of God, the actual appearance of God in human form is God yet distinct from God. That's exactly who, God, who Jesus is, which makes him God. But if that's still not convincing to people, we're gonna go through 55 explicit statements in scripture that make Jesus out to be God in the flesh. And what you do with that is on you. I ain't gonna, I ain't gonna push anything on you. All I'm gonna say is what the truth is, what the scripture is saying, and then you do what you want, man. You do what you want. But is it clear? Is it very clear that all the things I've said are biblically true? I hope so. I hope I've been as clear as possible. So about 18 minutes over, apologize for that. uh, For those that are jumping in the Discord uh, voice chat, the prayer time, Um, check out aboveapproachministry.com. If you have not, for all our free resources, my book, uh, our online church. There are ways that you can support this ministry, bunch of free resources. And um, yeah, I hope this was helpful. Man, when, when you can stand on the word of God and defend, biblically defend the fact that Jesus is in fact the divine son of God, God in the flesh, um, you'll be a weapon. All right, so that's, that's, that's my hope is that you would be a weapon in the hand of God. That's it today. You guys keep moving towards Jesus.